Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are recording. Once again, we're here. I'm in the backyard again today. Some days I can do it. Some days I can't. I'm, I'm sitting in the air conditioning tonight, today, but I uh, don't really need it today. You really don't. It's very breezy out here. So yeah, we're back once again. And this week we thought since it's Pride Month that we have a topic that we'll be talking about that is totally appropriate to that. But first, we're going to do our quick introductions of who's here. And manning the controls, as usual, is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. We also have Joe Shaw sitting in his living room with his grandfather clock behind him that will no doubt go off in about 10 minutes. And if I miss time, the muting, you may hear it. And it's also 10 minutes ahead, which won't matter to anybody listening on the podcast. But hi, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name's Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And joining us today are two very special guests from Stony Brook Medicine. And we have Dr. Allison Ellisku. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, good. And Allison is the medical director of the Adolescent LGBTQ Plus Care Program at Stony Brook Medicine. And she's also the principal investigator of a new study that is going on right now that we're hoping to get some people to get involved with. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And we also have Robert S. Challoner, also known as Bob, the chief administrative officer of Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. So welcome to you both on this beautiful day. Hi to all of you, and you left off that I'm also a frequent listener of 27 Speaks. So I love- all right, awesome. We'd like to hear that. We knew you were out there. Somebody's out there. He knows the theme music by heart. I, <laughs> right. I like the episode with the crows. I want I want the crows back. Oh, uh, the crows. Well, that's usually that's a September sound effect. So we will probably be using that again. <laughs> but the, the very nice thing, which I, which I keep going on about, is I don't have to put in the um, the whole leaf blower sound effect right now because. There's a ban on leaf blowers in East Hampton Town in the summer. Can I, happening. can I just take a second to ask? My neighbors tend to use, snow, they have crews that use snow blowers, or I'm sorry, leaf blowers, but there's no leaves. They're just blowing dirt. Exactly. That's all they're doing. And they just create clouds of dust. Yeah. I do, and I've seen this other places in town. Why are people doing that? Because I think that they're on a contract. I think they're getting paid to show up every week and do something. And that's the something they do. a cloud of dust. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. just don't understand. I, I'm sorry. This would be very much off topic. I'm We're not here to talk about a cloud of dust. We're here to talk about something else. So Pride, of course, is a big month of June. It goes back to Stonewall, 1969, right? When uh, the cops showed up to do a raid on um, the Stonewall bar and um, were met with a lot of resistance. And that was where the first Pride came from. So we figured this is a good time, of course, to have you guys on because you're talking about something that's very specific to that community. It's this new LGBTQ plus health needs survey that you've put out. And this is, just correct me if I'm wrong, this is an entire Long Island effort, not just on the East End, right? Yeah, correct. So it, it started on June 1st, the health survey, and it's going to go through the 30th. So you're trying to elicit as many responses as you can from, from that community. And I wondered if, Allison, you wanted to talk a little bit about the creation of the survey and what the needs were out here, what was maybe missing and what you're hoping that the survey is going to be able to answer as far as questions. 
Well, it's interesting you ask about the needs in that because part of the creation of the survey was try to figure out what the needs are and what resources our community needed, not just out here on the East End, but really across Long Island. So the survey is probably a year and a half, maybe two years in the making. And Bob was kind of right there at the beginning of it when um, there was talking about um, really uh, making the services for the new Edie Windsor Center, um, kind of expanding the services for LGBTQ individuals. There were some questions about what resources were really needed for the community or what was lacking um, or what were people having trouble accessing? So we first went to look for some, um, some surveys and some data uh, locally, and there really was not that much information locally at all. Even on the national survey level, there's really not that many surveys nationally that are asking about LGBTQ, how someone self-identifies. Um, so we really didn't have much information to go on. Stony Brook really decided um, because we're such a large academic institution out here on, in Suffolk that it was kind of our responsibility to start and spearhead this with Southampton and our community partners to try to understand what this community really entails. Um, you know, how many people does it include or what kind of needs do, do people really need um, and try to kind of understand the community and understand what resources would really help. So is this something that you were involved with prior to this or I, you know, I was looking at some of the videos um, from on the website and it, it struck me that, that some of it may have come from just the students, the medical students themselves sort of guiding this, the need for this. I wondered if because you're an educational institution, was it the medical students who sort of brought this to the idea of, of doing a, a survey like this? Um, I'm not sure the medical students had much to do with the development of the survey, but I know um, Stony Brook just in general, we, we created an LGBTQ committee about three years ago. And we've done many things, even aside from this survey that medical students have, been, have participated in pretty eagerly. Um, that includes changes even um, with signage throughout the hospital, policies throughout the hospital, curriculum for the medical students and the residents, um, even changing on the electronic medical record to make it easier for patients to be able to um, be identified with their preferred name or their preferred, preferred pronoun right in their medical record. So there's been a lot of changes hospital-wide. Um, I know that the students are very excited about the survey and have been spreading the word. And so out here, Bob, what have some of the issues been for the LGBTQ community? Um, I think Annette, that the and exactly as Dr. Oliscu just uh, described, there is there is not good data available and and uh, throughout the island, actually throughout the nation. And as we were planning our ED Windsor Center, the development of the ED Windsor Healthcare Center, which is specifically designed to to serve the LGBTQ community better, and I can talk about that in a second. Um, we 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 couldn't find good data that would help us. We we've essentially done a let's build it and see if they will come at this point and start off with basic services that we think they need. Why out here on the East End? Um, we know uh, nationally that um, the LGBTQ community is is underserved, quite frankly, and they're underserved for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, it, it may not be geographic, but it's issues around bias, it's issues around um, uh, uh, just knowledge, um, it's issues around comfort um, in a particular environment. Um, and as we started looking around um, at services available, I'm a member of the, that community, a gay man myself, and uh, have a lot of friends, and we've 
heard anecdotally of um, uh, people wishing that there were a center specifically um, identified to serve the LGBTQ community, a place where people could go and not have that moment of hesitancy when you have to sit down with your provider for the first time and wonder how they're going to react um, because bias still exists um, in the in the healthcare community. Um, and people are afraid to open up. But did that did that result in the lack of data that you're talking about? Is, is some some people's reluctance to self-identify, um, you know, with with their providers? Absolutely. There's, um, you know, it's the kind of thing you you may get a phone call at night and somebody calls up and says, "Are you a Democrat or Republican? And are you going to vote in the Democratic primary?" And you may not be so worried about answering that. If somebody called you out of the blue on a telephone survey and said, are you gay or straight? And can you tell me about your sexual history? Um, that's not something many people are gonna wanna share. And a huge portion of the LGBT community doesn't feel comfortable coming out of the closet at this point also, so that we know there's a very large uh, um, under-identified group as well. Bob, you mentioned anecdotally. Um, I suspect and i'm not looking to point fingers here at all i think it's it's been uh, uh the last few years have been a lot of progress but i'm guessing if people from the lgbtq plus community had issues at the hospital you would hear about it because anecdotally you would probably get complaints and things it, has that been an issue over the years at the hospital um i have to say that one of the things I feel good about living out on the East End is I don't think it's an overwhelming issue um, with our providers. Um, Dr. Liskew talked about the steps they've already taken and we've already taken. And, and uh, But you do hear these incidences of bias. And I don't think we are um, any more prone to it than, than any other health centers. And I think that given where we live geographically, I think if anything, we may be a little bit further ahead. But that doesn't mean that people still wouldn't feel more comfortable going to a center that specifically identifies as LGBTQ focused. Um, just like women, you know, may want to go to a female provider um, or, um, you know, I've heard men say, you know, if I'm, you know, if I have a urological issue, I want to talk to a male physician. Um, not because there's inherent bias in the system, but because, um, you know, it's, it's doing whatever we can to make people feel comfortable as the, uh, in, in accessing healthcare. So it's interesting that you know, you're talking about the new Edie Windsor Center. This is uh, formerly the David E. Rogers Medical Center, but that center was formed as sort of an HIV AIDS center originally, right? That's exactly right. It was original mission and we've been affiliated with Stony Brook for a long time. It was our first affiliation with Stony Brook um, was around HIV AIDS and it was uh, back in the early 1990s. Um, and the, unfortunately, the, the AIDS epidemic is very much still with us and we continue to treat people there. But that's also partly what led to us asking the question for the need for the service because in preponderance of the people there are LGBTQ and um, started saying, hey, I'd like to also see an LGBTQ primary care physician or you know, I could use some additional services. Um, and it, it grew out of those, uh, those needs as well. So that, and it's interesting because you would have thought that as AIDS and HIV becomes more manageable, 
that that in a way that that mission sort of started to go away and was not quite as pervasive as it had been and now it's sort of found this new way to kind of transition into the next generation yeah it's um and uh, dr olescu i'd ask to comment the need for hiv centers is still very very much with us um the, the medication management the other services um uh, clearly people are not dying um, the way they did at the beginning of the pandemic, but they are um, still very much in need for long-term health care that has a certain specialization to it. So, um, Dr. Lisco, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about the some of the issues that the survey itself gets into and, and how you went about um, working with others to create the question questionnaire and what are some of the topics that are touched on in, um, in the survey? It's a pretty detailed survey. Um, on average, it takes probably 15 to 20 minutes to complete. So it really asks a lot of questions. Um, it starts with just trying to know a little bit about the person who's taking the survey. It's completely de-identified, which means there's no name or email address or, um, or birthday or computer code that's kept. Um, so it's completely anonymous, but it first asks about um, how the person identifies um, if someone is 18 and older and they identify as an LGBTQ, even if they're not out in public, then they are uh, eligible to take the survey. And they ask a little bit about um, their overall health conditions, if they have any issues now, active issues like asthma or cardiac disease, asks a little about some of their, um, their social history, things like substance use, um, asks about their mental health overall, uh, whether they've struggled with things like anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts. It asks about um, last time they were tested or if they've been tested for HIV, kind of going on Bob's point about the HIV care and the, the need for that still, especially within this community. Um, it, it also asks about HIV prep, pre-exposure prophylaxis, whether that's been accessed. And it talks a little also about what kind of prior experiences they've had in the healthcare system. So it's really trying to understand more about the individual, what their needs are, what resources they may have had tried to find and may have struggled with. It asks about um, their insurance, because uh, there, there definitely are disparities nationwide where LGBTQ individuals may be um, uninsured or underinsured um, compared to heterosexual peers. So um, those are all issues that we're trying to find out about. And really the way this was created was we looked at some other, some of the national surveys for some um, starting information, we created a list of questions or things that we wanted to ask about. We worked with um, some focus groups to try to get some information about even just wording and making sure that the questions are worded correctly, that, um, that they're sensitive enough, um, but that we're asking the right questions so that we really can get helpful information. That's a fine line you have to walk, isn't it? You really, you, Incredibly. You, you've got to be careful how you phrase things, but you also want to get to the heart of the matter and you want to ask the, the questions that give you information you can actually use. I want, I want to clarify too, this, this survey is only for adults, correct? Yeah, it's only for people 18 and older. Um, so people who live in Nassau or Suffolk um, or people who attend school, college or university in Nassau or Suffolk. And what, what about young people um, in the LGBTQ plus community. What, what, what's the, the plan there? Are you hoping at some point uh, to do a similar outreach to try and get some feedback from, that's a community that certainly um, in, in many ways is, you know, there's a lot more conversation going on about healthcare needs for that community. Yeah, Joe, I'm glad you asked about that because as an adolescent medicine physician, I specialize in seeing patients who are in their teens and um, 
even early 20s. So that um, young adolescent, adolescent group is very important to me. And um, more and more people in that age group really are identifying as LGBTQ nationwide um, compared to the older individuals. So yeah, it's definitely something on our radar. And we're hoping that potentially after this survey that we'll be able to do something similar with the um, adolescents or young adults under 18 to get that information because it is very important. And I don't want this to sound uh, jaded and I don't mean it this way, but is one of the reasons for a survey like this to justify funding that, that it, it gives the institution a, a justification to then go ahead and spend money to try and do the kind of necessary outreach. I mean, I feel like that's, that's at the root of a lot of, of things that, that you have to be able to justify the, the additional spending. Is that part of what the survey is about? Um, I, I'll jump in on that, Joe. I, I really, I have to say um, with all sincerity that no, that wasn't what this was. About. Really? It really was about um, trying to understand the needs of this community better. And then just piggybacking on uh, what Allison just said, um, you know, really, if why aren't people using healthcare? And you asked the question about bias. Um, and I speculated that the bias isn't an issue. But we don't know. We don't have good data on that. Um, we don't know um, the, you know, what we should put first. Should we put um, primary care versus mental health services? We're we're really speculating, um, and um, you know, we we first and foremost just want to serve the community better. Um, and uh, you know, we'll find the resources when the time comes. But before we do anything, we want to know. We we don't want to build a service and. Miss, miss the mark. Um, so, and I think that's really important to us. I guess if you even know like what the numbers are like out here, I think that's, yeah, that's kind of a difficult thing. Like this isn't necessarily something that's going to show up on a census, you know, where you can look at the last census to find out how many X, how many Y, how many whatever, right? That's right. We probably will will not get a totally accurate count on the number. Like you know, if a thousand people fill out the survey, we still don't know if it was there's ten thousand people out here or thirty thousand. Um, but at least if we get a large response, we'll get a sense of what are the real issues. Why aren't people accessing care? Um, we know nationally that people are not accessing, LGBTQ people don't access care the way that other communities do. We don't know if that's actually the case here. We think it's the case, but we don't. So hopefully this data will uh, provide us a um, uh, lot better information. And then if they're not accessing care, what do we need to do better? Um, just like you know, when we plan services, we look at a community and Montauk needed a primary care. So we need, we know we need to put something out there. Well, what do we need to do better to serve this community? Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Dr. Oleski, I wonder if there isn't just some benefit to even asking, to even doing a survey like this and demonstrating that that it's important to Stony Brook Medicine uh, in particular to to, to get some answers to these questions that it's on your radar as something that you don't have the necessary answers to. That's a good first step just in general, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And um, even if you look at the flyers for the survey, it's, it starts with saying, um, have your voice heard. And so it really, I think, looking at both the community and Stony Brook, I think it's a very, very important first step. For community members, I think it's important for people to, to really make their voice heard and empower themselves with, the, their, with their care. So that if there are resources that are lacking or things that they feel like aren't available, aren't accessible or are missing out here, let's hear it. And then we and our community members will, our community partners will be able to really be able to, hope to hopefully change that. But on Stony Brook's front, like you were saying, Joe, I, I agree with you. I think it definitely is on our radar. Um, the, the, like I mentioned, the LGBTQ committee was created about three years ago. And um, it started on one, just one small little piece, and it's really grown into something pretty significant. And we're, we're actually known throughout the hospital now. If you walk through Stony Brook Medicine, you see people, especially now during Pride Month, with um, rainbow flags and um, rainbow stickers right on our ID badges. You walk into any of our offices or the emergency room, you now see a sign that says with um, both the rainbow flag and the transgender flag, please tell me how you'd like to be called, what name or pronoun you prefer to use. Um, so just small signs like that, I think really are helpful. Like Bob was saying with the, one of the true benefits of the ED Windsor Center is it's an exclusively LGBTQ, almost like a safe zone. It's a place where they, someone can come for any and all of their care. But if someone doesn't necessarily live there or wants to continue their care in a different office, walking into that office and seeing something like the ribbon that Bob was just showing or um, seeing a sign that we are welcoming, we're inclusive, and we can help you and provide care without anybody even opening their mouth at first, but just seeing a sticker or a sign like that is, I think, very important. And it, it does help to, to give that person feel more inclusive. So I was curious about the other staff members. Is is that, has there been an educational component on that end? You know, I know that it can be really hard to get people to get used to using other pronouns. Maybe some physicians aren't necessarily comfortable around LGBTQ plus people. Yeah, we've done massive trainings on every level at the hospital. So from the medical students to the trainee residents, um, to the front desk staff, the nurses, the nutrition staff, the social workers, uh, the, even the maintenance folks. And each training is a little bit different depending on who we're speaking to. We make it customizable to them. So they understand exactly what care and what role they play. Um, but truly anybody in the medical setting, regardless of their role, is going to interact and come in contact with LGBTQ individuals. And they need to know, they need to understand, they need to know why it's so important to use a preferred name or why the pronoun truly is important. Um, and actually the, um, these education sessions, these trainings have been incredibly well-received, welcomed and very well-received. So Bob, you know, you've been in the medical field for a number of years. So I wondered if you could give us a little reflection on what you've seen over the years. What are some of the difficulties of the early years in dealing with this issue and how things have sort of evolved in your time as an administrator at hospitals? I think um, I started my career in the early 80s when the AIDS uh, when the AIDS was first emerging and we saw staff and, and, and people being afraid, frankly. Um, and I think it was fear uh, driving people away from caring the way that they should at that time. Um, we learned a lot during the HIV crisis and I think the LGBTQ community became more visible during that period. Um, and I think that the greatest change we've seen is that this was something that nobody ever talked about. Um, and uh, 
it was, uh, you know, people were afraid to even bring up the topic of, uh, you know, am I gay or straight or, um, you know, what sort of services do I need? How do we approach that? And, uh, and I think that there's much more openness about talking about it and what are those needs. And um, as Allison said, um, doing it in a much more respectful way than, than was probably done in the past in healthcare. And I don't believe fundamentally that healthcare people um, want to operate in a biased way. I just think it's about education. Um, and once educated, people will do the right thing. Um, and we all are in this field because we want to provide healthcare to other human beings. And whatever we do will be the, uh, you know, we want to do it in a way that's that's right um, and creating access. So, and I think that, uh, um, when Allison was talking about the enthusiasm that we've seen, I think it's because most providers really do feel that way. Every group's going to have some bias, but over the years, I think that bias has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So I'm actually really optimistic, and I'm hoping that the findings from the survey and the other work we're doing will uh, will just help us become better as, as healthcare providers. And Bob, I'm guessing that it's a big part of training, and as you said, of education for staff now, compared to uh, how recent is it that, that that became a big part of of the training of staff it's 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 really been within the last decade I mean we've we've been doing training uh, we started I, I remember the first online programs we started putting out were probably seven, seven, eight years ago, and it's become more widespread. We've um, launched a big effort over the last couple of years. So the training is, is relatively new. Um, and uh, uh, you didn't talk about it quite so much or hear the training being mentioned so specifically previously, um, but it is, it is relatively new, but it's, it's, being, it's being adopted by people uh, very quickly, which is gratifying. And Dr. Alescu, I'm curious, you know, I'm sure that being sensitive to people's sensitivities um, and their sensibilities racially, for instance, has been part of the training for a long time. What's different? Are there, are there different challenges when you talk about dealing with the LGBTQ plus community, the challenges in training, challenges in how that's done, challenges in uh, you know, I, I'm just curious if it's this, is it this, is it just about sensitivity or are there other layers to it that, that make it a little, a little different in some way? I think there's a lot of similarities to it, but I think there's also an education component. Um, when it, when we're talking about things like, um, racial, cultural sensitivity, we're, we're not generally talking about using a different name than the name that's, um, on their ID card or on their birth certificate, for example, or using a different pronoun. Um, and I think some of that is, some people might, might wonder how important is that? Is that really important that we even use a pronoun in medicine? Um, but I think, I think it's really important that we talk about it. It's, it's hard to get used to, like the they or them pronoun can be challenging. Um, you know, as an English speaker, we think of they as plural. And yet when we're trying to speak about an individual and use it in, this, in the single, it, it, it's a little challenging at first, does take some getting used to. Um, so I, I think in some ways it's more of an education piece um, than, than just something like the racial or ethnicity cultural competencies that's really been around. That's been around for a while. I think this is a new addition to it. Yeah, and I think as popular culture um, picks up on it, I think it's probably easier now than it would have been 
five years ago, for instance, uh, gender issues and all of that has become just something that I think there's a lot more awareness. And, and maybe in some parts of America, that's not true. But I think here, certainly, um, it's I think these are these are relatively new issues for as far as the, the broader culture. But but they are really spreading quickly. And I think that probably makes the job a little bit easier for you guys, right? I, I'd agree with that, Joe. I think it's definitely. And I was just going to also add, too, there's, there's been sort of a good iterative loop, I think. Um, you, you raise the bar when you, when you try to provide better health care for one group. I, I believe we raise the bar for all groups. And um, just like we focused on pronouns, we've realized that, you know, historically we'd look at somebody and they, the admitting clerk would write down their race based on looking at them. We didn't really ask. And that wasn't always right. Um, you know, somebody may have dark skin, but may identify differently. Um, and um, uh, so we're, we're, as we're examining these issues with one community, um, I think it's forcing us to look at the way we're looking at other communities also. And I think that's a, that's a benefit um, to, to everyone. It's a great point. I also wonder if I hear what you're saying, both of you, there's the key here is a lot of it has to do with encouraging people from these communities to be, to get healthcare. It's, it's about not staying away. It's about not allowing those fears and those concerns to keep you from, from staying healthy. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the nation, national data, there are a lot of adults who identify as LGBTQ who have had um, discriminatory experiences or negative experiences in healthcare. So they they may avoid going to the doctor because they're concerned about it, or if they themselves haven't experienced it, they may know about someone who has or hear about someone who has had an experience like that. So that means that um, LGBTQ individuals are less likely to get things like routine preventative services, like well visits, like appropriate um, cancer screenings, like pap smears or mammograms um, that, um, that are really helpful and really, we really should be doing regularly. It also means that uh, if somebody has a, a chronic illness like uh, cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure or they're overweight, um, that they're not getting the care that they need. They're not getting the routine labs and monitoring and nutritional counseling, for example, that's so important um, if they're not going to their healthcare. E even the mental health piece is important also. Um, the, the, I, I know Bob was talking about disparities earlier. The, the disparities among LGBTQ individuals and in mental health is, is dramatic. Um, you know, it's, um, an LGBTQ adult is over two times more likely to have a, a mental health diagnosis. Um, and the, the rates of suicide or suicidal thoughts are significantly higher across the board age-wise, whether it's adolescents, young adults, even adults and older individuals um, who identify as LGBTQ. And if they're avoiding um, those mental health services for whatever reason, whether it's because of lack of insurance, lack of accessibility, or just not trusting the healthcare system. Those are really, really um, potentially dangerous issues to be left unchecked. So Bob, do you want to talk more about the Edie Windsor Center? Of course, Edie Windsor, she lived in Southampton and um, it was her Supreme Court case that paved the way for same-sex marriage. She was a local fixture here prior to her death 
and now you're naming the center for. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about how the center will function. You know, somebody asked me the other day, what's so special about the Edie Windsor Center? Like, what will I see there that's different? And I said, oh, if you walk through there, it's going to look like a medical office. And uh, there's not any, you know, interesting technology to look at or anything like that. The difference is going to be the people and that that sense of trust and um, uh, comfort. Um, we are explicitly identifying it as a healthcare center for LGBTQ people, uh, where they will where they can come and not be afraid of sharing their experience. Um, and that's going to be the biggest difference. Um, that doesn't mean anybody can't go get treatment there, but specifically, we want um, it to be a place that identifies. Um, vocally and, and visually as a place where people can feel that sense of trust and not be afraid to seek health care. Um, we are starting with a, a number of different services. We've recruited a very bright and very personable young primary care doctor happens to live, went through our training programs and lives in Hampton Bay's Dr. Eric Lella. Um, and he'll be the primary care anchor because in healthcare we like to anchor everything around primary care um, and then have somebody who's essentially your, your coach. Um, we will have mental health component that's in there. We'll have AIDS and HIV and testing services that will be there. There is a private area for, for testing. Um, and then we're going to um, access all of the specialty services that we can from um, Stony Brook, like Dr. Aliskew, who's got a, a specialty. Um, and one of the things we're looking for with the survey data is what, uh, what are the specialties that we may, we may need more often so that we can schedule them in there. Our goal is ultimately to provide one-stop shopping um, for people that they can come there and feel safe. Um, our goal is also to hopefully serve as a mini template for other centers like this in different parts of the uh, different parts of the region. Um, so we're excited about it. So, um, so the survey is that is it specifically for people on the East End, or is it all of Long Island? I just wanted to get the geographic or, or all of New York. I just wondered how the geographic parameters are working on the survey. The survey is for um, anyone who lives or goes to school in uh, Nassau or Suffolk. So it's all Long Island, not exclusive, but definitely including the East End. I just wonder, did you have a model to follow, not only with the survey, but also just the LGBTQ plus services that Stony Brook has set up in the last few years? Are you sort of pioneer in this realm? We're, we're the first in, in, as far as we know, on Long Island, um, but we are by no means the first. There are other LGBTQ health providers um, around the country, some very, very good um, centers, excellent centers in Boston and New York and San Francisco scattered around the country. And early on, and Dr. Olescu was on this committee from the beginning, um, one of the things we did was look at those services and assembled a sort of a compendium of a uh, what they all provide, and uh, you know, and that's that's really what started our questioning of the data. It's like, okay, well, how many of these do we need, and how many of those do we need? Um, and we just couldn't find the data to do that well. So uh, we started with what we were pretty sure we'll need, um, and uh, and and we want to grow that based on the actual needs of this community. Um, was there a reason that the that the um, survey is only open until the till June thirtieth? Um, you know, is that an important aspect of it or is that more just that you wanted it to tie in with Pride Month? 
I'd say that um, one, if you put something open forever, people tend to procrastinate. So we want to kind of, um, you know, we want to encourage people to get it done as quick. We're eager to get the data. So as sooner people complete it, we did want it to tie with Pride Month because it's a time when people are more attuned to LGBTQ issues. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we're relatively confident working with all of our partner organizations that we're going to be able to get a sufficient response rate in that, in that 30 days. And where, where can people find the survey? It's at stonybrookmedicine.edu slash LGBTQ slash survey. That's easy enough. Yeah, so if you go to that site, there's some information about it and you can click right there to, and it'll take you right to the survey. And again, it's completely anonymous. Uh, there's no identifying information. Um, you're, you're looking for people to be as honest and open as possible. That's kind of necessary for a survey like this. Yeah, and we're also encouraging people, if you take it, to also pass it along to others in your social, social circles or friends, family members, people you work with who also may identify or may pass it on as well, so that we really can try to get um, as many individuals who identify to try to respond. I think an important point that we haven't talked about is the partner organizations. We have, uh, what is it, Allison, 22 partner organizations that we are uh, yeah. we're working with to help. Because again, it's not like something you just randomly call people at home at night and ask the question. So we're, we're trying to work through these partner organizations to spread the survey as far and wide as possible. And, and, uh, and, and also the data is all gonna be shared. This won't be proprietary tests. The data will be shared with them as well. Um, and we hope will be used generally to just build better healthcare services. Bob, I'm curious, did you ever get to meet Edie Windsor? Um, she passed away a couple of years ago, but- Yes, I have met her. I've met her a number of times and got to know her and uh, went to her home. And uh, when she had the uh, backyard barbecues, I met her in that situation. I also met, um, I've, I've gotten to know uh, her, her widow very well. That's, uh, you know, New Yorker um, features their Sunday readings and they pull stuff out of their archives. And this past Sunday, uh, they had the whole, her whole story as one of the readings for Pride Month. And I, if, if you folks have never read Edie Windsor's story, I think it's terrific that when we did our first story about the court case, because we looked around one day and, and it was like, hey, this court case has a Southampton connection. And, you know, nobody on our staff seemed to even realize that when we first wrote about it a decade ago. Um, and now Edie Windsor is kind of a household name and she's got a plaque going in at uh, Southampton Town Hall and she's got the center name for her there. I think it's, it's a long time in coming. I think she's a really important figure and uh, someone who was almost, almost sort of lost to history. I, I think it's great that she's finally getting the acknowledgement that she, she deserves for the role she played. Absolutely, she's force of nature. Seems like it. So the Edie Windsor Center opened May 3rd and it's up and running. It's up and running. Dr. Lella's over there seeing patients along with um, uh, uh, social worker, uh, infection control, medical uh, uh, psychiatrist. Um, uh, there's probably a couple other things that are in there at this point too, but yeah, it's up and running. So have you, how, so how's the reception been so far? Do you get the sense that a lot of people are taking advantage of going there? 
not a lot yet um, because the word is spreading, but it's growing. And, um, you know, everybody is really enthused about it. Um, and uh, Dr. Lella is a good, uh, uh, a good presence for us there. And uh, so I think, I think we're going to see it grow very, very quickly. So. All right. Well, we'll do, we'll do our best to make that happen. Well, Bob, you're sure to hear about it on the podcast. So at least we'll, we'll have one person that we've, we've told about it. I'll give you a thumbs up. I promise. <laughs> Actually, your podcasts are great. And I love, uh, I love, I love listening to it. And um, it's like, I know that I actually know those people doing this podcast. That's, I really That's like. the kind of comment that gets you invited back for future podcasts. <laughs> I didn't say I like them. I just said, I know them. No, I didn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good point. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.